Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we are continuing our conversation on Scott's book, Pastor Paul, Nurturing a Culture of Christiformity in the Church. are making our way through the seven examples that demonstrate how nurturing Christiformity was at the heart of the Pauline mission. And today we're going to look at Paul's culture of world subversion, which is a great title for a chapter. Um, And then you start by saying that sometimes the pastor has to subvert if nurturing Christiformity is the task. So pastors are subversive. Tell us what you mean by that. Oh, it's it's an amazing, I use an amazing quite, uh, statement from Eugene Peterson when he said, most of the individuals in this amalgam, he calls his congregation, suppose that the goals they have for themselves and the goals God has for them are the same. And I say that he sounds just like C.S. Lewis with this. It is the oldest religious mistake, <laughs> refusing to countenance any real difference between God and us imagining God to be a vague extrapolation of our own desires and then hiring a priest to manage the affairs between self and the extrapolation. And I, one of the priests they hired, am having none of it. But if I'm not willing to help them become what they want to be, what am I doing taking their pay? I am being subversive. So that's that's part, and I think uh, we have to be careful here. I think a lot of young, fresh seminary graduates enter into churches and they think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it right. And everybody else has been doing it wrong, and I'm going to show them how to do it. And we're going to get right back to Jesus and discipleship and spiritual formation. And they get all these uh, utopian ideals. And that's, that's not the way to start out with a church. Uh, I, I've, I often say you need to just listen for two years. Mm. and keep things calm for a couple of years. But most don't have the patience to do that. But a, a, a genuine pastor who preaches the Bible, and especially if they have the value, the, the opportunity to use a lectionary, because it's going to be coming from so many different angles over time, rather than just say preach Galatians or Sermon on the Mount or something. Um, every pastor who preaches honestly will subvert the hidden assumptions and worldliness that is at work in the church, mm. in their local church. There, there will be moments when the pastor has to say things that are going to make some people, if not most people in the church, uncomfortable. And that's part of what it's about. I And I do want to emphasize, Laura, I think you understand this. Um, I do want to emphasize that it's easy for some to think that that's their sole task, is to have, be a prophetic voice. Uh, prophetic voices are valuable when they are a part of a trusted voice that has been pastoral. But all prophecy, let's say always speaking words of prophecy, is just either going to get uh, people in your church all riled up all the time, which mm-hmm. means they're a caucus rather than a church, and um, 
and it will not lead to spiritual formation. It'll just learn. It'll just lead to some kind of resistance or dissidence or even uh, anger and 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 hatred. Um, but I, I really believe that the the best prophetic words are uttered by people who have gained the trust of the congregation. It can penetrate the deepest that way. Mm, that's good. Yeah, and I I think this is. This is really timely because I think there are a lot of things that um, a lot of our churches um, have beliefs that the pastors want to challenge and should challenge. But Mm -hmm. the way that we do it matters as much as the fact that we should do it. So there's both things at work. And, And I think we see that in the example of Paul. Paul said some pretty hard things to the churches that he was in relationship with. Yeah. But and and sometimes it was received better than others, but he was really leaning into the relationships he'd already formed. He was counting on the strength of those relationships to carry the weight of the hard words he sometimes yeah. needed yeah. to say. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. He uh I don't know. I mean, it's really difficult to work from Paul's letters to how he normally communicated with people in the congregations, the little house churches, how he spoke, what his tone was. It's very different. It's so easy to impose our tone on Paul or Jesus or someone else, Peter, um, rather than just to admit ignorance that we really don't know. And uh, I think Paul's I think Paul could be strident at times, but I think there's a lot of pastoral compassion and empathy in that man as well. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Will you look at um, Paul's interaction with the church in Corinth? Oh, and oh. you t- you talk about um, just that the Corinthian church had a very strong sense of honor and shame and that they, they had sort of a competition for honor that this was very common in Roman culture. And Paul is sort of coming up against this idea. Um, and you, and you talked about how people in the Roman empire boasted about their social status and this was acceptable. This was common practice. This was encouraged. Um, and this is something that Paul, wants to challenge. He wants to address. Um, But tell us a little bit about how Paul did this. How did Paul approach it? Well, one of the things um, that we have to understand about Corinth is its sense of Romanitas. Uh, It wanted to, Corinth was filled with people who wanted to be like Rome. And so imitating Rome and the system, systemically, you know, we like this word systemic today. Systemically, um, Corinth was was trying to be Rome. And part of that process was to uh, rise in what's called the cursus honorum, or was to rise for the men um, to rise up and become someone significant in the mm-hmm. community, someone with mm-hmm. status and honor and glory. And this was the the motivation, the drive, the passion of a lot of people. And their families were connected to them, their wives, their children. Uh, so it was not just a male thing. It was a male thing, but they dragged with them everybody in their family. 
And Paul somehow, and um, I know we'll get to the some of what you were asking about, but somehow I mean, Paul had said enough things that they really criticized him. And one day I read through 2 Corinthians 10 through 13, and I would encourage, I would never encourage a pastor to do this on Monday, uh, but maybe on break or when they are feeling confident and can handle it, just read 2 Corinthians 10 to 13. And as you read it, think of what Paul is responding to at, from the Corinthians and what they're accusing him of. Yeah. It is brutal, ruthless. It's mm -hmm. brutal. Mm -hmm. And Paul put up with a lot. But at the heart of their opposition to Paul was his refusal to play the game of Romanitas, the idea of becoming a glorious, honor-filled, status-driven Roman Christian. Paul wanted no part of that. And um, I don't think I've exaggerated this. Um, and I, I tried to measure this against some of the best scholarship that I know of on the Corinthian letters. Uh, and to me, Paul routinely is aware of how the Corinthians are operating, and he is out um, to sack their sense of honor and to knock it off the pedestal. It's almost like Paul says, you people want to become, uh, you know, to use the language of our former president, you want to you want to make Corinth great again. You want to make your family great again. So they're on this quest of greatness, and that means status and honor. And status is not simply um, achievement. Status is uh, how you are perceived in your society. It's a it's a cultural location. And no matter if you operated according to your cultural location, you brought honor to yourself, and you were supposed to bring honor to yourself, and therefore you could boast about your honor because you it was connected to who you were and where you belonged and where you were located in that society, and and Paul wants status and honor to be subverted because Christ subverted his own status and God has identified with us and Christ became poor for our sakes so that others might become rich. Mm -hmm. So Paul almost plays a game of let's, let's find someone of high status and let's challenge and challenge them to act contrary to their status and do something that subverts their status. So you're famous for your speaking. Don't be so proud about your public. You know, what, whatever it was, Paul wanted them to subvert the quest for glory in the, as Romanitas, and he wanted them instead to glorify God. And so That's I don't good. know if I'm getting close to, close to what you're yeah. Well, as you're talking, I'm thinking about how in Corinth you had families and households that were sort of vying for this honor and status. Um, 
And it gets me thinking about like, we're churches, we're house churches doing this, competing with one another to be the best church. Um, I don't know if they were, if any of Paul's churches had that sense at work, but I'm thinking about modern day churches and how that sometimes takes place where we do it mm-hmm. best here. We we have the best church, we have the best programs, we have the best leadership, you know, the sense of pride in what we have to offer. Yeah. Um, I've seen that it, in work. I yes. call it the who's got game. Yes. Who's, who's got the biggest church? It's a, yeah. yeah, go, go ahead. And I've, so. I've seen that at work in some towns, you know, that kind of sense yeah. of like, we're the biggest church in town, or we have yeah. the best programs, or everybody's, you know, looking to us. And um, and it just seems so anti-Christ, anti-Christian mm-hmm. to me, that sort of sense of pride in our church. Like, I get, I get loyalty, I get the sense of belonging and connection and that there is a sense of pride and connection, just like you have a sense of pride in your family. But I think that we have to be very careful that that, that pride is connection to Christ. It's, mm-hmm. it's connection to Christ's church. And on a global sense, I think we just have to be careful about, you know, pitting churches against one another it seems really yeah. strange to me. Well, I, I do think that there was competition in Corinth. And we see that probably at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, where, you know, I am of Apollos, I am of Paul. Uh, I don't think this is theology so much as it is uh, laying claim to the patron that they saw as a personality cult. Then uh, there is this sense that the Corinthians are obviously offended that Paul has not taken money from them. And uh, this is this has been quite a quest by scholars who study the collection and who study money and Paul that I think the consensus is that Paul um, refused to take money from churches as they were forming. Hmm. Once they were formed and became, in a sense, financially independent or financially soluble or something, mature, he would take gifts from them for uh, the mission. Mm. But I don't know how much Paul actually took and, and used from the local churches, especially when he was serving among them, which is an, all, what, what he's trying to do is avoid two things. He's, avoid, he's trying to avoid the sense that he's, he's doing this for money. And the other thing is the Corinthians were taking pride in their capacity to fund a well-known philosopher. It's almost like they say, we, we have employed Aristotle, the Aristotle of the Christian world, the Plato of the Christian world. We have employed him here in our church, uh, the Cicero of, our, of, our, of the Christian group. And they could take pride in having this sort of the great speaker, the well, the great theologian uh, employed at their church. You know, if if someone today think about this, if some church could hire N. T. Wright, you know, yeah, they would be, be so excited. proud, <laughs> but so proud. And it, and it and Paul would say, "That's what I'm talking about, right there." Yeah, that sense of pride and 
honor that we have the best. And Paul wanted to subvert that because that's not to be the goal of the Christian. The goal of the Christian, the leaders in those churches, is to serve their community, whether they get any glory out of it or not. And in fact, the big thing is, I mean, uh, one of the big things that Paul subverts is is money in Second Corinthians. We've already looked at this theme of generosity. Yeah. But he subverts some of their ideas about money uh, because he uses Christ as a model that he gave himself up. He, he was rich and became poor, not the flip of being poor and became rich. And, and he also uh, makes it very clear that in that world, when you were benevolent toward other people, you would get a statue or you would get your name engraved on a stone, uh, on a building, uh, on bricks outside your church, you know? And Paul said, no, all the glory, and he uses the words that are constantly used for honor and glory in the Roman world as Romanitas. He uses the words for glory that goes to God. So not only does he subvert the Roman system of honor that comes to people who are benevolent, but he rips all the honor out and says all the honor goes to God. So even if you were benevolent, we're not going to give you any credit. You know, <laughs> We're not going to do it that way. And uh, I, I was in college when I first realized this. And I remember um, a pastor urging people to give money. And if you gave money, that we would inscribe your name on a brick. And if you gave a lot of money on a marble stone, that would be the foundation of the new building that we are building. And I, uh, Chris and I walked by the high school two times a day now. And um, on the football field are these donors. Yeah. Downtown in the middle of Libertyville, there are bricks with people's names on them who donated bricks. And I think these are all good things. I'm really glad. But every time I see those, I think of Paul saying, yeah. nope. You give the money, and we will erase your name from the brick. And we're <laughs> going to put God on it. And that's all that matters to you. And yeah. that that is a metaphor for mm. world subversion for the yeah, Apostle Paul. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, and I think at one point you write that um, Paul is going after their terms and definitions of status and honor. And he's saying, you know— all you, you have all you want and you are rich and you are kings. Like that's so great for all of you. But then he shows that in their terms and in their definitions, Paul himself is a loser yeah. in the sense that he, he doesn't have titles. He doesn't, he's not rich. He's none of these things. So Paul is, is offering himself as an example, um, of, of this inversion of status and honor and glory and holding this up as as a model for them of what they should be attempting. Yeah, I'm trying to find, yeah, titles and images. Um, the passage uh, that Paul uses is, we have become like the rubbish of the world. Um, there's a church in Denver called, this is no kidding, the name of the, at least it was, there was a church in Denver, it may still exist, may not, called the scum of the earth. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it, so. it's taken from this verse, 1 Corinthians 4, 13. And the dregs of all things to this very day. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he leads us as captives. And then he brags about weakness. And he loves the idea that, that uh, we are God's foolishness, fools, that God chose what is low and despised. We are clay jars. We're servants. We're farmers. We're artisan builders. And, and so Paul's terms for himself are so much counter hmm. to the way we use terms in our churches today. You know? Right. Okay. I'll, I'll tell a personal story. But this struck me as so important at my time in life, and I've carried it on. When I was teaching at Trinity as a young professor, I did not, when I first started, I did not have a PhD. I was finishing my doctorate. Mm -hmm. And so students called me Scott, all right, because, or some of them called me Mr., which is a <laughs> high school language, which I didn't like. Yeah. And uh, some would call me professor, but most would call me by my first name. And then I got my Ph.D. I finished and it passed. And I remember a student asking me in class, do we now call you doctor? Uh, oh, and, and if they did before that, I would say, I hope you're a prophet. <laughs> uh, I hope you're a prophet. But I, they asked me if I, I they should call me doctor. Well, at the time, I was a specialist in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew 23 has this very piercing passage. Don't let anybody call you rabbi. Don't call teacher. You know, you have one teacher. You have, a, you have Jesus. And I remember thinking, okay, no, I want you to call me Scott. And I always said, that's what my mom and dad called me, and that's what you call me. <laughs> and I stuck with that. Now, when I got to teaching undergrads, in fact, at at Trinity, most of the professors went by doctor, and uh, I don't I don't remember anyone insisting on it, but I mm -hmm. suppose there were some. Um, when I got to North Park, the students called me by my first name because that was how they did, mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, maybe a little bit more respect here is in order at times, but um, I. I have always believed that we should treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ and go by first names. Mm. Now, uh, you know Justin Gill, yeah. one of my TAs. He's now a graduate. down. He's now working with the, the school. Um, he still calls me Dr. McKnight. And I said, Justin, one of these days you're going to have to call me Scott. And he <laughs> says, no, uh, that day hasn't arrived. So he And his little kids still call me that as well, Dr. McKnight. <laughs> So, um, but I really believe that there is a quest for titles, you know, reverend, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. canon, yeah. uh, very reverend, a bishop, uh, you know, archbishop, your, uh, what do they say, not, not your, uh, your majesty and stuff like your that. Your eminence. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do not want to cast shade Toss shade? Is that the expression that's so cool? <laughs> I don't want to toss shade on the respect that yeah. uh, that people have and that that people feel in respect for other people. But at the same time, we need to check our status mongering and title mongering. Yeah. Um, uh, here, here's another story that I think is totally appropriate. 
Alice Shire, I tell the story in Blue Parakeet. Alice Shirey, one of my students, a long time ago, long time ago, um, was um, beginning to preach at her church in Iowa. And she was called something like a minister or something like that. And after like seven years, she went into the pastor and she made an amazing statement. I just love this statement. I grew up in a locker room in sports. She said, she said to the pastor, I think it's time for me to turn in my JV uniform mm -hmm. for a varsity uniform and be called pastor. And he said, you're right. <laughs> so it was appropriate. I thought that was yeah. totally appropriate that this was not her desire to have status, but it was it was her desire for the church to recognize that she was a pastor and not a woman subordinate. Right. It was really important. So I but I do think Paul's words subvert our desire for titles and we need to be aware of it. We do. And it's it's titles are an interesting thing because I think um they are attached to power. Yeah, so sometimes yeah. there's there's a withholding of the title as a way to hold power or assert yep. power over. You're right. Um, and then, and sometimes people claim titles without the credentials behind them, yep. which is a little shady. Um, and, and we want to honor, but titles are also a way to honor people. And so I think that, you know, I do know, like, um, sometimes with female professors, I'm much more inclined to include their honorific because I know how hard they worked for it. And I know that, um, to me, I want to honor the effort and the, um, exceptional obstacles they may have faced. Like I want to celebrate that with them. So you want to say Dr. Kohik? I almost always call her Dr. Kohik. Yes. Okay. Okay. Because to me that, that is, um, I, I just, I feel like she worked hard for that. I want to oh, honor yeah, that. Oh, yeah, she did. She did. Um, but, you know, and even I remember in the first class with you that you said, call me Scott. And I was like, that goes so against my grain of, like, respect, you know. Mm -hmm. But I do appreciate that sense of of emphasizing that we're brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And as Christ followers, um, we're, we're called to be equal before the cross. We're called to care for one another. So we're, we're in these interesting relationships of equality, but also like, there's also respect. That's a piece of that. I, re I really like what, that. I really like what you've just said here. I think that let's just say Dr. Koic or Dr. Farrell, um, they grew up in a world where, they were not going to be called those things right. by men in an academic world because they were women. Yeah. So the, the use of that honorific or that title is a way of making a statement that, that we believe that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and you have achieved um, what was formerly not achievable and yeah. we want to honor you with that. Yeah. And I think if the if uh, the person says but please call me by my first name then I think that's entirely appropriate. And I do think that it is it is wise for students to um 
to ask, what should we call you? Mm -hmm. um, I think I try to establish this in the first 15 minutes in a classroom to try yeah. to make it comfortable for people. Uh, but um, but I, I don't resist when someone insists on I mean, it's not very common <laughs> anymore, but um, I really like what you said that I, I do think that there's something for women or for African-Americans or Latin Americans or Asian Americans who have been deprived of those sorts of positions and status qualifiers in our culture mm -hmm. uh, to be given that honor because it it's almost like uh, those people are able to say we have arrived. Yeah. We, we have achieved. I, and I, I really like that. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm -hmm. In a weird way, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I almost wonder if it's an aspect of this world subversion in the sense that um, calling, like I'm thinking of my friends when I got the title reverend, yeah. how many of my female friends in particular have like, changed my name in their address book and put reverend in front of it, you know, because for them, it's exciting to see that something like that could happen and does happen. And so they're much more likely to call it out and to use it because I think it is, um, overturning some, some expectations. Yeah. Um, so it's, in, it's, in a, it's yeah. it, uh, you're right. It subverts, the worldliness of male patriarchal power. Right. It does that by calling Dr. Dr. Ingrid Farrow, Dr. Farrow, you subvert that that's only for men. Mm -hmm. It's a subversion of male power uh, and puts it where it should be. Right. In an egalitarian framework. I, yeah, and, and I think that's really cool that your friends... In their address, changed it to Reverend <laughs> Laura Tarot. Yes. You've been through a lot of this lately. Yes, yes. I've, All I've these qualification things you've had to go yes. through. Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, I do think this this idea of Paul. Uh, the other thing that really struck me in this chapter was the thought that um, the Corinthians were complaining about Paul's rhetorical skills, and he kind of takes on that discussion and. He doesn't defend himself. He's not in a hurry to sort of, um, you know, list his qualifications um, or present himself as this fabulous speaker. Um, instead, he sort of says, uh, he de you write that he degraded himself in his rhetorical skills because he wanted both to subvert the Corinthians' worldly status measurements and to focus on Christ and the cross. Um, and so you write to pastors that God loves the ordinary too, and we should focus on being faithful and forget being great. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about this idea in terms of preaching, because there's a lot of pressure on pastors to mm -hmm. have very eloquent preaching capabilities. Um, and I do think that as practitioners, um, we should aim for our best in order to honor Christ. But I also think it's okay to say, I'm okay with being faithful um, and, and doing my best, but I don't need to be like some other brilliant preacher. Um, I don't need to feel bad about that because I'm being faithful to Christ because I, I, I'm thinking of Paul and he's sort of like, you're right. I'm not, I'm not a fabulous philosopher. Um, I'm faithful to Christ and that's what matters. 
You know, I, I, I totally, yeah, I think this is an amazing part of Paul. And I think there's a side to it where if you read Philemon, you go, that was pretty clever. Yeah. And, uh, and you read some of his, you read Romans and you go, well, this guy's not too bad. I mean, he can, he can keep up with pretty fast paced ideas and it really clips along. Okay, and he makes some jumps in Romans 9 through 11 that are very difficult even to this day to follow, but it's it's dense. So I do think Paul had rhetorical skills. Yeah. But I do I do believe also that Paul refused to play the rhetorical oratory game that the yes. Corinthians wanted. Now, how do we apply this in our world? All right. Um I believe that we have to become all right now let's just say you're young you want to you want to hone your preaching skills and it's going to take 10 years so just in case you want to know it's going to take you 10 years (laughs) it's a long time now some people are a little bit faster but uh, you know it's it takes a while to integrate uh biblical knowledge theological competence um exegesis and exposition Mm -hmm the text that you have to look at, and your congregation to where you can blend them together into a message that really speaks the Word of God to your congregation but is faithful to Scripture. You don't you don't go to seminary and come out. We don't spit people out who can do that every week. That's That takes a decade of really good work. And some people are really funny and good speakers when they're 25, but they still don't have pastoral gifts yet where they're integrating. Okay. I think that there comes a point where you say, I'm pretty good at this. And I think we can we can learn uh, that we're pretty good by people saying to to us very positive things after our preaching. And I believe also that as we grow in our skills of preaching and speaking, that we have learned how to, let's say, control and um, say the right things at the right time that moves a congregation. Yeah. And some of that is really important and good. And other parts of it is just plain oratorical skill that brings us honor and glory. At that point right there, I think we need to practice the discipline of subversion. Mm. All right. Now I have uh, for years collected my favorite quotations, uh, let's say 15 to 20 years, favorite quotations from really good writers. And I can, every time I speak, just sort through my, I call it a commonplace book, it's electronic. It's digital. I can sort through it, and I can come up with some pretty good quotes. A little Marilyn Robinson here and Barbara <laughs> Brown Taylor here. Yeah. And one of my favorite, you know, like George Orwell there and G.K. Chesterton here and Dorothy Sayers there. And it's pretty impressive to people. They go, wow, yeah. how did how did you remember all that, you know? Well, I didn't, but it was impressive. And I think at that point, I believe we need to be very careful at conveying the image of how good we could be 
And so we could practice the discipline of not doing that, of using our own words and not bringing in the timely quote. Now, some people would say, you know, there are some homiletics professors right now, just if they're listening to me, which they shouldn't be, but they could be. <laughs> They'll shake in their head like, no, no, don't tell people to do that. Well, yes, it's about pride. Mm. It's about wanting to be seen as really good. Right. The desire to be seen as a really good preacher is not a cruciform desire. Right. Paul subverted that because that was what the Corinthians wanted out of him. And he said, it's not going to happen. So, so good. he may have not practiced his introduction and he may not have practiced his segue. What do you call it? Transitions mm -hmm. from first point to second point. He may have just said, I'll just use an outline mm -hmm. and see what happens. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I do think that this is wise for us to, to be aware of. Yes. Yeah. But it's not an excuse for the first year preacher to be lazy. That's to true say, too. I don't want to be <laughs> proud about myself. Well, I want to say to him, you don't have any worries about that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think our, our goal is Christ's glory. That yes. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, Scott, today we talked about the culture of world subversion, which was really fun. And next time on Kingdom Roots, we'll talk about the culture of wisdom. And we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.